Well, here we are. It's the uh, first episode of the new series we do uh, on the weekends, Connecting the Dots. I, of course, am Kevin Prindeville, but um, it it always intrigued me, and the, really the reason we're doing this series, it always intrigued me that a lot of modern America, I guess we'll say, the either younger generation or even uh, somewhat of uh, Generation Z, although not as, as much, so many of us have almost forgotten what it means to be an American. I mean, we, play, we pay lip service to you know, freedom and liberty, and you know, of course you always hear it thrown around, you know, this guy's destroying our democracy, and um, you know, we need to restore our, our democracy, all that stuff, and without even knowing that America is not and never has been a democracy, uh, there's a difference between that of a, of a pure democracy and a democratic republic. Now, that's not the topic today, obviously, but it is one of the things we're going to be looking at uh, in a later series. One of the things that I've had the privilege, I suppose, of, of studying has been history, and I'm not, uh, I'm not a doctorate um, or any sort of uh, special qualification in the field. However, um, I would consider myself more than a hobbyist. Uh, I did study it in college, uh, and I felt, and in something that we kind of missed in the book *Crime of the Century*, that he's getting a rewrite. One of the reasons is to put this in there, and really change the tone of the book as a whole. One of the really, I guess, benefits of going to a smaller, relatively conservative school is the fact that, that I had the opportunity to learn from people who not only knew their history, but knew it well and knew it the right way. So much of how it's taught, I think even in the public school system, has been tainted by uh, Marxist theory, which is essentially that power and class struggle uh, is essentially the epitome of historical learning. And events such as the Age of Discovery or the Edicts of Constantine and the councils of many popes have all been based on power and keeping power. Uh, those may be half-truths, but it's not the way to learn history in any way that glorifies anything other than progressivism. And, of course, progressivism is, as nothing can be an end to nothing, progressivism is the idea of progressing towards a Marxist utopia, and we'll put air quotes around that. I'm sure the Russians, the Chinese, and the Cambodians would uh, disagree with the idea that their communistic ideas turned into a, a, a utopia. So really the point of this series is to combat that, and hopefully in an engaging way, and to bring about the notion of why, in this first series, the United States exists at all. How did we get here? Why did our founders revolt? Why is our revolution that glorious? And how do we understand that we're still a great experiment 
in the history of mankind. And I think the first point, the first point to make here is the idea is that nothing comes from nothing. Of course, this is a great argument for the existence of God, but more so, nothing happens without something first moving it. There, there is always a cause and a reaction. So the U.S. didn't just happen because the United Kingdom decided that they were going to just raise taxes just to be mean because they're, they're mean over there uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, unless we're talking about the Germans, no one, no one deliberately changes the course of history just because they're angry. And we have to, therefore, understand what, what is the ethos of the United States and what is the point of even having not only these borders but our ideals and the Constitution. Why was it written the way it's written? And to understand that, we have to understand in large part, uh, English history and, and why the English even had a parliament for as many years as they did before before we had our Senate, before we had our Congress, before we had an idea that the people should have a say in their government. All of that started way back in the dark, dark ages. And I would argue it started all the way back with the signing of the Magna Carta. You see, because England... The United Kingdom, and there's a difference, but in this case, I believe the Scottish also have this mantra. And therefore, the United Kingdom is our political grandfather, whether or not we like to admit that. England, the United Kingdom is a different nation than the rest of Europe. They, from the outset, allowed women to be rulers. Of course, in the medieval era, and as long as France had a monarchy, and as well as the Germans, there was something called uh, Salic Law, which decreed that no there could no be no queen in charge this led to countless wars and disputes over succession when the only ruler left was a female yet in the united kingdom and at this point i should say england they had no problem passing the crown to the queens I mean, Virginia is named after Queen Elizabeth. Maryland, named after Queen Mary. Of course, the notorious ship is named after Queen Mary. And perhaps the greatest age in the long history of the West was known as the Victorian era, named after Queen Victoria. So the English have always had this idea of liberty and it's not the French ideals of, of expressionism and what we would call as the artistic expression of freedom but certainly political freedom and a, and a right to understand 
yourself and the right to identify apart from the king or kingdom. Now, this series, as I have mentioned before, is meant to directly combat the rise in, in Marxist political theory where we have an entire generation growing up, especially in this country, and I can't speak for Europe, although I would assume that it's relatively the same over there. We have an entire generation growing up and understanding history from a Marxist viewpoint without even knowing that they're being taught that way. And because of this, I would argue we don't know our own history. Generally, we know who the good and bad guys are. Yet, ironically enough, in the U.S., we still don't know that the Soviet Union was a horrible, horrible organization. But there was a, uh, a hilarious interview. Do you know uh, Jesse Waters? He's the... Um, He's a Fox News commentator, and I guess he has a weekend program, and he does a lot of uh, man-on-the-street stuff. One of the things he asked, I believe he was at USC, don't quote me on this, but he asked somebody, an American student, who was in the Civil War? And the person could not answer who was in the Civil War. Now, I don't know if they just picked the dumbest person in the class. But there's two options. I don't know how you couldn't figure that one out. At that point in U.S. history, there was a North and there was a South. There's a Civil War. There's a good chance they're fighting each other. But to understand... Our own history is such a necessity. So vital to the survival, I would argue, of our republic. And yet we don't even know who was fighting who in the only American Civil War. And therefore I have started this series in an attempt to combat this tragedy. So if we're going to understand America and we're going to understand why we even believe in the things that we believe in, as I've mentioned, we're going back to the Dark Ages. The year's going to put us right around 1215, 1214. And in these days, we would hardly recognize Europe. Now, England had, for the most part, formed itself in what we would recognize as England, but there was still a degree of anarchy, and militaries were more led by their nobles than by the king. What I mean by this is that the nobility in France and Germany and uh, Italy especially, the land was ruled more by the nobles and the, and the regional power than by the king, though the kingdom may expand into 
many different regions, the true power was held by the local noble. And this is what makes, when uh, Robin Hood was written, when he's fighting against the Sheriff of Nottingham, the idea is that he's still English and he's not leading some sort of civil war, he's robbing from an unjust noble. And there's always this back and forth between the king and the nobles, and sometimes, in some cases, the nobles would be rebellious to the point where the king wasn't safe in his own kingdom. Now, that seems foreign to us. Despite the political climate, I believe someone like uh, uh, Donald Trump is still relatively safe in the United States. Certainly, Obama could go anywhere he wanted in his own nation, but this was not the case for the old kings uh, that have descended into legend. And certainly for a very young king, King John in England. Now, he's right around the ripe age of 15, 16, 17. Certainly old enough to make political decisions, right? And England at this time holds territory in Normandy and in the south of France. There's long, a very long standing dispute between the two nations, and they are uh, at war with each other. And King John, unfortunately, lost lost quite a lot of land in France. And this was seen as a really an embarrassment by the nobility. And they thought that he was unfit to rule. But because of this, King John wanted to counterattack. He wanted to strike back at the French to reclaim that lost land and hopefully drive himself to Paris. But if one thing is true, if one thing's true about military strategy, since the dawn of mankind, it costs money and it costs manpower. Now, King John had to go to the nobility and ask for these things. They had already been taxed heavily for this defeat that King John had just been handed. So the nobles, still trying to keep their wealth, trying to keep their manpower so they can adequately rule the land that, that their ancestors gave them and provide for the town. See, nobilities weren't, and the nobles themselves weren't these little petty tyrants. Uh, they were expected in exchange for their power, they were expected to protect the townsfolk in what are known as uh, the different shires. Now, this is an old English history and kind of outside of our topic of discussion today, but that's where the, we get the word sheriff from because these nobles had a power structure and they were the the reefs of the, of the shire or shire reef. And over time... I'm sure it was the Irish who started to mispronounce the word, and it slowly became known as a sheriff or someone who owned, who had the highest authority in that region. Of course, Lord of the Rings fans would be popular or would know the term shire. In any case, the nobles had the idea that they had a say 
in how their land and how their people, by extension, were treated. Now, they were loyal, in a sense, to the king, but there was no real sense of nationalism. Nationalism is a, is a phenomenon that sprung up uh, during the Hundred Years' War, which is, well, about a hundred years away at this point uh, from the topic that we're studying. It was much closer to regionalism, and, and of course, every noble pledged himself to the king. But the English, because of their structure, had a heightened sense of loyalty to their local people and local governments than they did to their king. Now, we can see this in the idea of state pride and state rights. Now, I would argue that Texas over here, many of the people are very proud to be Texan. In fact, there's little small groups dedicated to trying to get Texas to cede from the United States and become its own nation again. Now, as, as silly as that is, as Texas was legally annexed in the 1830s, we can see this idea of being loyal to your local community, even over nationalism, still in the United States and somewhat in England uh, still today. Now, of course, you have with this uh, Brexit issue going on, a lot of the English conservatives have really kind of turned on the London elite who have this idea of a greater greater global government at the expense of England. And so the working man who lives outside of the big city of London, big capital, has really kind of revolted against that. Not taken to arms, but... And what is the next point here? Has really taken to asking of their government through their electoral power, asking the government to change its course and its policy. Now, the idea that local people could even petition the government to do anything and the government would listen is foreign to pretty much any medieval power. Not just in Europe, but the world over. And this is where we get to Clause 61. You see, because in 1215, the nobility, which we'll generally call uh, a parliament, forced John to the table. I'm sure there was some light skirmish, but it wasn't, it wasn't a civil war. There was no call to arms by the nobility. But there certainly was a meeting, and the nobles produced a document known as the Magna Carta. This document is pivotal in understanding why we have the right to an assembly, the right to meetings, and why we have the First Amendment here in the U.S. And it started 800, 900 years ago. See, because Clause 61 and this is not for the common man. In these days, it was for the nobility. 
However, Clause 61 said that the elected barons had the right to check the powers of the king. Not that the king isn't sovereign. Not that the king doesn't have the right to lead the nation. But he is not above the law. Now, this is in stark contrast to... I'm going to use the, the French example again here. And obviously, the Germans fall in love this too. Kings, since the dawn of mankind, have claimed but especially in Europe, of course, with a, uh, a Christian background, have claimed that they are placed on the throne by God and God alone, and therefore have a divine right to make the law. The nobles, the barons, the common man, as it were, decides whether or not they're going to follow the law. And Clause 61 of the Magna Carta goes against the divine right to rule. That the king, because the king is subject to the rules and laws of God, Though he may be placed on the throne by God, he is not above his laws. So the ability of the nobility to collectively check the powers and the will of one man created a ethos in England more so codified it. It had already existed, but this was its first writing into law that states that not only is the king subject to the law, he can't seize land from the nobility or from anyone, for that matter, without the permission or consent of parliament. Now, this is huge. This is absolutely stunning. I mean, the idea that... One unelected official, the king, can't exercise his will unless it's consented by the educated nobility is the first step in creating, well, about three amendments in the U.S. Constitution. The government can't seize your land without paying you what it's worth. The government cannot quarter troops in your house, as in they cannot just take your property, and the government is checked by its own educated people. This speaks to us, at least, to the nature of law itself. Because there's this idea, and I suppose two competing ideas, that whoever makes the law ought to be subject to it. 
that laws are based on natural law, what is observable in nature. Now, this is later philosophy, about 600 years after the Magna Carta, but I'm sure had the argument been made in the 1200s that many of the theologians of this era, Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, would have agreed with this argument. That laws are based on natural law, natural law comes from God, and no one is above natural law. Therefore, no one is above mankind's law. And that all laws ought to reflect what God has already instated. This strike at absolutism, which says the king, and we can see this in the Catholic Church, the Pope, that they're because of their divine right to rule, that somehow they are acting as God's will on earth and therefore are above the laws that they create. This also means that the general public can only be governed by their own consent. The legitimacy of the government does not have to do with family lineage, but by whether or not the general public will accept the laws and rules of a government. So the big takeaway from today's episode, it's a little shorter than I had originally envisioned, but this, though it's a narrow topic, this is the basis for everything that we're going to build on. The Magna Carta was not a document written for its time. Like Hammurabi's Code, about a thousand years before the Magna Carta, this document codified an ethos that would be the basis for English law, English philosophical thought, and even the basis for the English church. And that's exactly what we're going to get into next time. We're going to discuss uh, the English Reformation next time. This is the 1500s. Uh, under King Henry VIII, you'll know him as the guy who uh, had many wives, killed most of them, and then, of course, the last one outlived him. Now, we're going to discuss, because of that, we're going to hit the, the water principle. And that is the idea that ideas diffuse uh, when they are essentially crossed an ocean, and that seems loony and odd, but when we discuss this, trust me, it'll all make sense, and it is another point in what makes America, and what makes America so great. This has been the Connecting the Dots podcast. I am Kevin Prendeville. Welcome to view our library of crime of the century and the Kevin Prendeville show history, which covers more uh, topical issues, but of course is viewed from this historical and somewhat biblical perspective.